I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. Well, today I am focusing on what leaders need to be and how we get educated in this new online world we're inhabiting. So I'm really happy to welcome Martin Roberts today. And I know Martin because I work for Martin at the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership, which is possibly, I'm just going to be bold and say, the leading sustainability institute in the world. Eh, Yeah, I'm a little biased because I work for you, but We do a lot of great things, and Martin in particular is an inspiring person to me because of his focus on impact and his ethos to equip leaders to lead in a really sustainable way, a way that's good for society and the environment and actual human beings. So he leads the digital learning program for, as I said, the Cambridge University Institute for Sustainability Leadership. And the whole digital learning program at CISL reflects the passion of a lot of very smart people for applying technology to making education accessible and at the scale needed to accelerate change and address challenges. So we obviously live in a challenging world. I don't think anybody's missed that. But CISL also has a really useful leadership model that emphasizes empathy and connection and collaboration, as well as a holistic understanding of the world. So that's obviously incredibly critical and something that's actually, let's just say, I've been missed out of a lot of past leadership programs, MBAs, etc. But also CISL has this beautiful ethos that I am fully on board with that everyone can and should be a leader, whatever their position in an organization or in society. So he has designed and delivered CISL's portfolio of popular online courses alongside a lot of very smart people. And they've already equipped thousands of business leaders to effectively reshape their organizations and apply innovative business models for the future. Martin is a delight to talk to, and I'm really looking forward to this chat because it's actually coming on the eve of the launch of the next course that I'm the head tutor for, which is a really useful and engaging course called Communicating for Influence and Impact. Runs four times a year, and it always has about 100 incredible people from around the world participating. But I am just really honored to be part of this because Martin and his crew of really talented people are experts in digital education, in sustainability, in business leadership. And Martin has worked in diverse sectors around the world. He's worked in several African countries. He obviously is based in the UK now, but he is also director of the University of Cambridge Natural Capital Leaders Platform and is responsible for helping companies with a global reach to manage their impacts and dependence on natural resources. And that involves a lot of innovative approaches and new business models. So really helping leaders to think differently and to kind of break up with some of the systems that they might feel locked into and to do a better job for the world and for society. His past experiences in things like global tourism and the mining industry. So a really diverse range of experiences there, helping them to shape their response to climate change and their depletion of natural resources. He's also a member of the UK government's Ecosystem Market Task Force, which you might not know existed, but it's pretty cool to know that it does. He has engaged with the oil and agricultural sectors, smallholder farmers, 
forestry management, and lots of other work looking at things like supply chains. So as I'm saying throughout season three, which has just launched, I'm talking to Martin today because we are living in extraordinary times and a world that urgently needs leadership, a new kind of leadership, innovation, new ways of thinking. And Martin is in pole position to talk about how that's actually taking place because I see from experience and I know through people like Martin that there are a lot of smart people working on changing the ways that we think and lead. And there are a lot of people who are joining in on that journey. And we live in exciting times. And I am quite optimistic about where this is headed. So let's have a nice chat, but let's also get a bit uncomfortable. Welcome, Martin. Thank you, Betsy. That's a wonderful introduction. You're very kind. Delighted to be talking to you today. You're rather illustrious, Martin. It's really not hard to introduce you. <laughs> it is actually a pleasure to work for you. So I'm not lying. I'm not making that up. You wouldn't be on my podcast if I didn't think that. So I always start with the same question for everybody, which is what is an uncomfortable moment that's changed your life and that shaped who you are and what you do in the world? Yeah, that's a good question. I suppose there have been lots of uncomfortable moments in my life. And I, I suppose that's because... You know, I've kind of worked in in a whole range of different uh, aspects of sustainability and you can't help but come across uncomfortableness at every turn. But I suppose a seminal moment for me was fairly early on, on in my career when, when I went out to work in an African country, actually Zambia, as a volunteer. And I spent two years out there working with smallholder farmers to look at food and food security. And I was struck by how a significant population in Zambia, perhaps not surprisingly at the time, were food insecure, you know, simply didn't have access to food at the right time or, you know, their, their households were, were short of food, whereas, you know, 90% just about got by. But when I came back from that experience and started working in the UK, I worked in an area of the northeast of England called Gateshead, and there whilst it was a very different environment, I found that people working on, uh, living rather on council estates um, in social housing had exactly the same kind of issue. 10% of them were food insecure. Wow. Uh, and so I suddenly started making the link that inequality was not just something that was out there, but is actually in my own society as well. Mm. So um, that made me start to think about, you know, how do we start to address these enormous gaps in inequality, which have a, an environmental as well as a social dimension to them? Wow. Yeah, that's often something that escapes a lot of people that it's in their backyard, in their hometown, but also that link to seeing it in other places and just how extreme it can be. So how did that bring you to what you do now? How did you end up in this role at CISL, Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership, what are some pivotal moments between then and now? Well, I suppose the natural next step was me, for me to work in a non-government organisation, a civil society organisation. And I've worked in various ones, both in African countries and here in the UK. And I certainly had an impact in that kind of work. But the more I worked in those kind of areas, the more I realised that business was a key player not only in terms of contributing to some of the problems that we face in the world, but actually the potential to come up with some of, those, some of the solutions. So I started to see business as the almost like the engine of the economy that needed to be changed. And so I started to think about, well, how can I do that? Now, I could go and work in a business 
and possibly have some influence in that individual business. But I wanted my reach to be broader than that. So I started to look at the wider business community and things like sustainability and leadership and what that meant for people who are working day to day in businesses. Mm, so the idea of being a multiplier appealed to you or was it was it actually that clear that you sort of thought if I work in an institute or someplace that works with a lot of businesses, I can have more impact? Or was it more accidental, happy circumstance than that, that you ended up in this role? A bit of both, really. But I, my sense was that the, the challenges were so enormous. And so the period of time that we have to resolve them is mm. so pressing that I knew scale was a big thing for me. So I'd, I'd worked in the NGO sector, I'd worked with certain parts of the economy, certain parts of certain communities and had an impact, but that hadn't been scalable. And so I wanted to work um, with businesses and wider sectors and industries to make that really scalable and to do it as quickly as possible, you know, and with as many people as possible. Mm, Because you talk about as quickly as possible and that kind of lends itself to a question about the urgency in which we live, because I know at Cambridge we talk about the VUCA world, which is... Mm volatile, uncertain. I always forget what the C is for. I need to know this because I have to teach it as of tomorrow. (laughs) Complex. (laughs) Complex, ambiguous. Yes, there we go. The VUCA world. So it's a really nice little acronym for, well, I talk about we work in a VUCA max world now with COVID. It's just so clear that the speed with which we need to address things and the speed with which we're able to address things is the good news is urgent. We really need to address a lot of These things that are on the horizon, resource depletion, runaway climate change, climate emergency, social inequality, etc. So let's talk about Cambridge. Cambridge is a pretty incredible place to have landed. So obviously you have some great qualifications. So how did you end up there? What led you to get your PhD to end up at Cambridge in particular? I think the academic community, although I kind of worked in education and further education sector and other parts of the higher education, I hadn't I hadn't really considered myself to be an academic in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything I've done has been very much applied. You know, yes, I I got the qualifications in order to be able to have conversations with people. So they perhaps take me seriously. But Mm -hmm. everything I've done has been about application and practical and down to earth, getting your hands dirty, you know, that kind of stuff. So Cambridge was a a bit of an odd choice, but an opportunity came up and they were particularly interested in working in that whole area of inequality and how, you know, how could business work to address issues like poverty and inequality. So I'd started working at Cambridge on those kind of topics and I broadened out into, as we now frame the work we do in, in CISL, people, nature and climate. So anything that crosses those kind of three areas, I now work on. And, you know, CISL is this incredible organization, been around for 30 years with this single mission, which is to empower individuals and organizations to take leadership to tackle some of these critical challenges. Mm. So it was an amazing organization when I joined. It's grown enormously since I've joined it, but it has behind it this huge academic institution with an enormous amount of multidisciplinary kind of information and ideas and and knowledge that that you can take and apply. And so that's why I came to Cambridge, really. Mm. And I'm delighted that I I made that choice because it's led on to other things. But CISL is a very outward-looking organisation and it works with business, finance sector and other organisations. But my work is predominantly with the business community. 
It's interesting because you say Cambridge and it just brings with it this real weight of heritage and prestige and it opens doors. Do you think the fact that it is Cambridge has made it so much easier to work with businesses because they, you know, they don't think that you're some upstart who's trying to attack them. It's reputable. They trust you. There's a lot of rigor into any approach that Cambridge proposes that CISL has behind it, especially with 30 years of existence with CISL. So do you feel like Cambridge has a real in with businesses in particular because it's Cambridge? Yeah, I think it's seen as very establishment. It's seen as a safe space to talk about some of these topics. It's seen as an impartial space. Mm. But at the same time, you know, we're not complacent. We are an institution and the institution has changed over its 800 years and needs to continue to change. So, you know, there's been criticism of institutions like Cambridge reinforcing inequality and reinforcing certain systems. And and we have to challenge that internally as well as we do externally. Mm, That really actually brings up an uncomfortable point that's probably a good one to grapple with here, which is how do you work as part of the establishment without propagating systems that we're trying to address through CISL, without propagating social inequality or climate change, supporting and working with businesses while also challenging them to really overhaul some of their approaches when it comes to how they use natural resources, how they deal with profit, what they think of as success. And maybe this is a good moment to talk about the Cambridge leadership model, but how do you work with businesses productively without being part of the problem? I think it's really important right from the very get-go with any organization, particularly business, to be absolutely clear about what engagement and what relationship you're going to have with those companies. So yes, it is a safe space to come and talk, but we will challenge and do challenge those companies and put them into very uncomfortable positions. Uh, we hold a mirror up to their practices. And so they they know that right from the very start. Um, we'll do it in a constructive way. And we'll do it in a way that if they uh, recognize it, that we will actually, you know, do everything possible to support them to change. So we're obviously, when we're deciding who we're going to work with, we're looking at that potential for change. And obviously, you know, the leadership model has been part of of that conversation. Mm. So, you know, a few years ago, we did a piece of research where we spoke to several directors of HR, directors of L&D about leadership and asked them, you know, what was the health of their leadership? (laughs) And they all came back with a, a common story, which was that they really struggled to find the leaders that they needed or found it very difficult to develop the leadership internally in their organizations. So they had the leaders for this kind of VUCA world that you talked about. Mm. And unfortunately, the kind of places they were looking for that leadership, business schools and so on, were not developing that kind of leadership. And so we, we identified what we call this leadership gap between the traditional type of leadership we have been developing and still continue to develop, I have to say. Yeah. Um, and it tends to predominate. And then this new kind of approach, which is, is very different. And it's different in a, in a number of ways, really. I mean, it's different in the sense that it looks at putting purpose at the very heart of, of leadership. So your personal purpose, you know, why am, I, why am I in this world? What am I trying to achieve? Mm. And therefore, you know, what, what on an organizational level, what do I, I want my organization's purpose to be? There's a lot of questions about, you know, the role of business and, you know, why, what is the role of business in society now? It's not simply to produce profits for its shareholders. You know, that's something that, that companies and individuals are starting to tackle with. And a lot of individuals, when they're looking for companies, are wanting to align their own personal purpose and principles with that of an organization. Um, 
people are increasingly questioning whether they are working for the right organizations. And I think COVID has kind of accelerated that, really. It's given I was going to ask. <laughs> yeah, a absolutely. chance to really reflect on, yeah. on what work is because, you know, we spend such an enormous amount of time at work and, and we work very hard for organizations. You know, is there a good alignment and is it clear what that alignment is? So purpose is really at the heart of the Cambridge Impact leadership model. And then the other area that we look at are kind of, you know, the building blocks of, of that leadership. So mm-hmm. things like, you know, the importance of values, you know, the sense of agency and the kind of worldview um, and very purposeful leadership. And then a whole different way of thinking, you know, developing, you know, kind of contextual insights, mindsets, knowledge-based kind of uh, necessity to innovate, all those kind of things like that, thinking in a very different way. Mm. And then the kind of practice, you know, how do we walk the talk? Sorry, talk the walk, walk the talk. Walk the talk. I always um, get the two switched to like walk the talk. Okay, yeah, it. you know, it's kind of, and, and how, you know, in my practice, do I stay resilient really? Because a lot of this stuff is really mm-hmm. challenging and day-to-day challenging and it can sap, you know, people's enthusiasm. So, you know, how do you build that kind of resilience and keep that purpose alignment? So those are the kind of areas that the models look at. So it's very, it's a very reflective and adaptive kind of leadership. And that's not least because of this whole Booker world that we live in, where on a day-to-day basis, our work is less and less predictable. You know, if you're working in a company, there's the external pressures of that Booker world, you know, climate change, natural resource depletion, massive inequality, growing inequality. And if your company has a, a kind of purpose, it has to start to address those issues. And many are starting to do that. So the issue then becomes, you know, how do you, how do you reflect and adapt to that changing situation when a solution one day is not the same solution the next day? Mm. Um, so it's a completely different mindset of leadership where perhaps we've been more reductionist in the past and always look for a simple solution. Or what we've done is what I sometimes call kind of heroic leadership following. <laughs> you know, yeah. you kind of Google leadership and YouTube will throw up lots and lots of individuals very happy to tell you, you know, how they are great leaders. And if you only followed them, you'd be great. Well, you know, unfortunately, the world's not quite like that. And, you know, individuals are not like that. Individuals have their own attributes, their own strengths, you know, their own challenges, um, their own environments, which are utterly unique. And the organizations they work in are often unique. Mm -hmm. So you have to be adaptive with your kind of leadership models. And able to appreciate complexity because it really isn't something you can do with a tick list or just go with what your MBA has been teaching for the past 30 years. And it is interesting what you say about a lot of a lot of business leadership programs are they still haven't adapted their approach to really reflect the current context. So they're still kind of turning out cookie cutter MBAs. Yeah. No offense to MBAs, but mm, think about it. <laughs> yeah, no, but I, th- I think as individuals, we really hunger for that silver bullet, that simple mm-hmm. answer. And I think we're we're educated right from, you know, pre-primary school, right the way through to reduce things into manageable size chunks and work in silos all the time. So having solved a problem over here, we're then satisfied that we've made progress. But of course, you know, sustainability is a classic kind of issue where that interconnectivity is so understanding that interconnectivity is so important. Uh, because ah. you get these incredibly unforeseen kind of circumstances that you you change something in one area and it changes something else, you know, in an unforeseen way. So you've got to be very fleet of foot and you've got to have this kind of system thinking way of looking at things. And, and when I say 
system thinking. I don't mean as perhaps an engineer would that I need to know all the different boxes and they're connected. I think it's more a kind of mental attitude that I will never know the whole system. (laughs) And therefore, I need to navigate through that system and learn as I go along. And a lesson learned one day will perhaps stand me in good stead the next day. So that's kind of how I see system thinking. So it is more, yeah, it's more an awareness. It's more a consciousness than it is a learning the rules. It's principles to live by. Because I was going to ask you to explain systems thinking, because what I'm finding in my work in advising leaders and doing a lot of a lot of work with leadership in different corporates in particular is they're now wanting things on resilience and well-being and understanding that things are more connected. So I think that's come just from the context we've found ourselves in with the pandemic, because they see that people are falling over. People's mental health has not really done very well, but hasn't for years, but now it's become very apparent or they realize that you can't have an unhealthy, overworked, stressed workforce and be successful in what you do. If you want to produce profit for shareholders, eventually your business is going to break if you don't pay attention to all the systems. And also if anybody listening is just really trying hard to be an ethical consumer, you start to realize pretty fast that nothing is straightforward. You know, if you sort of I don't know, um, bioplastics. Yeah, it sounds great, but they're not recyclable in most systems around the world. So you come up with this problem of you have this great, you know, biodegradable plastic that actually is still going into landfill or incineration, and there's just no silver bullet approach. And it's a really stressful way to live until you start to kind of be able to skate on that, to swim in the complexity, right? It's, It's just kind of about learning to be with the discomfort of that realization because it's quite uncomfortable. Yeah, but also yeah. then there's kind of a beauty to seeing how everything is connected. It's it's yeah. just a different lens, isn't it? But I think I think leaders can thrive in that environment as well. I think those those kind of leaders that are comfortable questioning themselves, being more open to listening to people, um, being open to collaboration, so mm. that they would work with people they wouldn't traditionally work with. All of those kind of approaches, I think, are where the future of leadership is going. You know, how can people thrive in that environment? Mm, And do you see a shift in the types of people who are becoming leaders or a shift in mindset? Or is it just we see that because we work with those leaders and there still isn't quite as wide scale a change as we'd hope? I see more of those individuals, not least because, you know, we're developing them. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I see them going out into their their organizations and really influencing change and creating another layer of leadership where there's permission to be that kind of leader rather than, you know, us churning out heroic leaders um, and the limitation of doing that, even if it was the right right strategy. I recently... Predominantly male, I have to say. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So talk more about that. Is there a place for consideration of not necessarily female, but feminine leadership, more nurturing, receptive, active listening kind of leadership? Is that the antidote to the hero leadership of sort of the old school models that we're talking about? I think there is a pressing need for more feminine traits. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that could mean both men and women exhibiting those traits. I think the kind of feminine traits of collaboration, collectivism, all of those kind of things, as opposed to individualism, you know, personal striving, all of those kind of things, I think, are more masculine traits. Mm. So that's the way I would, I prefer to see it. Um, That being said, you know, we've seen, if we look around the world, for some of the the leadership we've seen during the pandemic, 
you know, we've seen some of those feminine traits playing out uh, very well in terms of the countries that have coped with the, the pandemic better than others. Yeah. Um, A lot of which have female leaders, right? Exactly, That's kind yeah. of no but, accident. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that male leaders haven't been able to exhibit yeah. some of those traits as well. Yeah. But it does, I think, I think it does challenge uh, what is, you know, normally perceived as a heroic leader, as I say. I'm dying to find different language than masculine and feminine because I was bouncing this off of my fourth year students here in Barcelona and I'm lecturing them in leadership. And we were talking about the masculine feminine traits last week and it really triggered them because obviously it's, it's there's such an association with gender, like male and female, not just masculine and feminine that I, I'm dying for somebody to invent better language to describe those two buckets of traits than masculine feminine because it could be quite divisive and kind of triggers people to miss the point that those traits yeah. make up one holistic, very good leader who can flex different parts of that when needed. Yeah. So I know that your drive and the drive of CSL and why it's such a great alignment for you is really for impact to actually help these leaders you're training. And when we talk about leaders, I'm going to keep reminding listeners, we're talking about people who aren't necessarily in leadership roles yet. Most of them are on the courses at CISL, but helping people to have impact as leaders. So what is some of the impact that you've, you've seen as a result of the ability to think and unpack and learn that people have encountered through CISL's courses? That's a good question. I mean, to pick up on your point, what's fundamental with our kind of, with all our courses and the aspect of leadership is that you can be a leader wherever you are in an organization. You don't need to have a title of leadership, nor the kind of legitimacy within your organizational structure of being a formal leader. I think that's really important. Um, we do work with traditional leaders in CISL. We work with chief executives, we work with boards, and we work with you know directors of different business units. But it, it became apparent five years ago when I started looking at digital learning that we simply weren't going to generate enough <laughs> of these kind of new leaders by working with that group alone. Mm. And I was also struck by quite a few companies that had these almost like poster boy, and they were predominantly men, poster boy kind of sustainability leaders who, when I met them, told me that one of the challenges they had was not setting ambitious targets for change, but actually getting their organisation to change underneath them. <laughs> and it suddenly dawned on me that we needed tens of thousands of leaders at mm. every part of an organization if it was going to change. And so that's when I started realizing leadership was quite different from perhaps how we traditionally seen business leadership. Mm. So that's the first thing to say. The second thing is that, okay, so everybody that is armed with the latest knowledge, that is armed with a, with a good range of skills, that really understands the kind of leadership that's needed in the context that we now are working in, then that means that, you know, how do we have impact? And one of the models we use is, yes, to skill people up and give them the confidence and the resilience and the networks, importantly, that they mm. build throughout these courses so that when they finish the course, they don't drop back into where they were before the course yeah. and are merely just well-informed. So the network's very important. But what we do is with all our courses, all our students business professionals predominantly uh, that they are, will produce a personal action plan. Mm -hmm. And that, as that name suggests, it's what they will do as they go back into their environment, their sphere of influence, their organization, their company. And it's what they will implement as a result of going on the course. And we get some amazing 
personal action plans that are incredibly ambitious Mm -hmm. because we encourage that. And what we've done is we've done some research to follow up to see, you know, what students do 12 months and 18 months after going through one of our courses. And we know that about 70% of those individuals implement all or part of those personal action plans. So that's an incredible impact for a course of any kind. And I think the reason that it's so high is because these are passionate individuals. If they weren't passionate before they came on the course, they're passionate after the course. Oh, gosh, I see that so much in Communicating for Influence and Impact. They just they light on fire halfway through or a third of the way through and you just watch them go and it's incredible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And of course, they meet brilliant tutors like yourself, Betsy. Uh, (laughs) Of course, that helps. But we really do interact a lot with them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And those tutors support, challenge, and many of them, you know, build friendships way beyond the course. And then, of course, you know, they are part of this wider network. So Mm. they perhaps during the course have have talked about uncomfortable um, parts of their work Mm -hmm. uh, in a psychologically safe environment where people are encouraged to support and not criticise. They've met other people that are going through the same kind of challenges and perhaps bring a different perspective to the whole conversation. So, you know, they leave the course incredibly charged with these ambitious personal action plans. So Mm. that's part of the impact I, I think we have. And then the other is just sheer numbers. You know, you you can't now, well, I find it very difficult to work with a company and not come across these people in an organization. So a couple of years ago, I went, um, I was invited to meet a, a head of sustainability, a new head of sustainability and a chief executive in a, a global clothing company with high fashion kind of clothing. And I sat down and the person uh, who was the head of sustainability said, hello, Martin. And I didn't know them, but they seemed to know me. Uh, Anyway, it turned out this person had been on one of our courses. And we had a conversation with the chief executive, some very ambitious plans being laid out for the organization globally. I went back and I looked through my records and I happened to see the personal action plan of this individual. And that's exactly what we were talking about. So there's a wonderful live example. I just got chills. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of stories like that. There's lots of you know, amazing shifts in organizations that one can trace back to individuals who've been on our course. So Mm. that's the kind of impact we're looking for. And the scale of it is really rather incredible. And because, I mean, it's, it's a really rather happy coincidence that the world has suddenly gotten so comfortable with online everything, online learning, online meetings, because it's just driving people to opportunities like this. And it's already been there for several years. But I mean, like in my course, we have around 100 people. And in our last presentation, we had 23 countries in the world represented. And it was just mind blowing to watch them interact and learn from each other and teach each other. And you're right. It is incredible how vulnerable and personal people get because it's such a safe space. And there are these forums each week with a different module that they interact in and they ask questions and they admit where they're struggling and they meet each other. And in fact, in mine, I had two people who worked for the same really huge global organization on different continents and had never met before. So they connected within this really well-known household name organization. And we're like, we need to work together. Completely different functions. One was in finance. One was, I think, in logistics. But it's just incredible to watch, yeah, to watch these connections and to watch people really get it, that they can have a personal impact. And that's the whole focus that they're driven toward week after week is these action plans. And I remember in the last presentation too, we had a student who was from a Middle Eastern country and had this huge ambition 
to really change the status of women. And I was just thinking, oh my gosh, this is going to be incredible to watch. Because as you said, you never know what's going to happen next and where you're going to encounter the impact of this learning and this facilitation of people stepping into their superpowers with really great skills and a Cambridge certificate behind them. And then they, they have this super network and it's amazing, amazing. It's such an honor to be part of. So this kind of brings me on to a tough question about digital learning, which is mm -hmm. the digital divide. You know, there are still people who don't really have access to technology and education and this ability to build skills. And they're no less capable, they're no less driven, they're no less passionate about sustainability and communities and making the world better, but they don't have access. So what can we do about that? And what can Cambridge do about that? I know that's a tough question. <laughs> it's uncomfortable. Yeah. I suppose the first divide I was dealing, I've been dealing with is the divide between people that can afford to come mm. to Cambridge and those that can't. You know, the, the, one of the criticisms of digital learning is that, you know, the people that have the money can afford bricks and those that can't can have to buy the, the clicks. Mm. Um, so I think we've democratised learning to the degree that we can with the approach that we've got. But you're quite right that there are people that either you know, can't afford to come on a digital course or, you know, simply don't have access to the technology. So what we're trying to do with the, the former of those is to create bursary payments to help attract some of those individuals that wouldn't otherwise be represented on the courses. But in order to make sure we do that properly, I think we, we're looking at how we provide a, a bridge between their current situation and the situation they'll find themselves in when they come on the course because mm. there would be nothing worse than setting people up to merely just represent an unrepresented group so we're working on that what that package looks like at the moment in terms of the digital access i mean that is growing it, it's always surprised me how parts of the world that you would think are disconnected actually aren't are, are connected and yeah. you only look need to look at you know the use of mobile phones in emerging economies and developing yeah. countries, in some instances, way ahead of us. You know, mm -hmm. we're way ahead of us on banking, for example, in East Africa, using mobile phone texts and things. But there, there will always be people outside that that just simply can't access it. And distance learning options, I suppose, are an area. But at the moment, we don't specialise in that. So it wouldn't be my part of CSL that would, would work on that. But, um, but those are the areas that we are kind of looking at. And I suppose being aware of it, oh, well, I always say consciousness is the first step. So it's one of those things that, I mean, I see CISL being one of those organizations that is going to be thinking about it and will be trying to grapple with, you know, how do you reach people who don't have great access to tech or how do you do mobile, you know, distance learning on a mobile? Because like you said, a lot of these places have leapfrogged us in terms of technology because they're not stuck in old systems that were once very innovative, but now have gotten quite old. But I'm also then interested about talking about has leadership become more distributed because we're talking about sort of, you know, brick economies, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and also, you know, awareness of diversity because I do a lot of work on diversity and inclusion. So I hope we have more distributed leadership, but and what I'm talking about here people who aren't quite sure what I'm talking about is the idea that it's not the preserve of just some usually dude at the top of a hierarchy who makes all the decisions and sets strategy with his board of other dudes. I'm sorry to say dudes, that's how I talk. But is leadership becoming more diverse 
more geographically distributed and i'm talking about business let's stick to business but maybe also in other ways what do you think yeah i mean the short answer from my perspective is yes it is of course it's not changing fast enough at all but there's some amazing leaders that are from geographical locations that represent you know different aspects of society you know ethnic uh, representation. I mean, just amazing. And many of those are featured in our courses. So Mm -hmm. we challenge ourselves to make sure that we have that rich diversity in both our delivery teams and, you know, the people that we feature as speakers Mm -hmm. on each course. But simply, but it's not happening fast enough. And, you know, you only need to look at the statistics on gender, for example, uh, to see that there's, you know, terrible underrepresentation in every sector and in particular sectors that are very male dominated that has to be addressed and some of that is around opportunity some of it is around skilling and you know our latest course women leading change is looking very much at at the latter uh, for that and how you develop those skills in a safe environment and then open that out into how you survive in sometimes hostile environments that are less receptive to your ideas so yes that's my sort of short, <laughs> short so answer. Get, yeah. We have a long way to go, an awful long way to go. Yeah, and I suppose it's almost like we're asking the question while we're still educating the solution. So maybe we're not seeing it yet. But I mean, I'm teaching a bunch of undergrads and the majority of them are women. And I have no doubt that they are going to go out and make a difference. Also, Women Leading Change. This is a really exciting new course I'm looking forward to seeing the impact of. And Big shout out to Zoe Arden, who designs a lot of these courses and actually is an incredible resource, an incredible person leading this course. So I would recommend anybody listening to this, if you're interested, keep an eye out for that course being launched, as well as any of these other CISL courses. There are ones on sustainable business and high impact leadership, and the range is really quite incredible. And also, I'd say we get this comment every time from our students, and I know across the Institute, people get this. It's a really different approach. So It's online learning, but often that's run by platforms that do the online learning for the institutions they represent. You know, I'm not going to name any names, but Cambridge, well, CISL actually has real tutors involved, really stirring the pot. I see my role as a head tutor as being very much to stir interaction, stir thinking, challenge, but we really take a very hands-on role and that's quite unique. And actually the comment we get more often than not is, wow, this, I didn't expect this much interaction, this much sort of FaceTime with my tutors and this much direct prompting and and involvement in my learning. And it really does make it quite personal too, because we know our students. There might be a hundred or more of them, but we know our students. So yeah, I would just say to anybody listening to this, keep an eye out, check out CISL, because it really is quite different and really is quite impactful in the way it intends to be. And a big, big credit to Martin and the people who've created these courses and all of the other tutors, because it's we all have this ethos. I think we see it as really being in service to impact and making the world more sustainable and making leadership more sustainable. So I guess we're kind of ending here soon, but I really would like to hear what is a final thought you'd like to leave people with about where leadership is headed? Because there's a lot of there's a lot to be optimistic about, I would say. So what would you like to leave people with? Well, I mean, we've reached out to over 10,000 individuals who I hope leave their courses knowing that they are a leader and perhaps didn't come on the course necessarily thinking of themselves as a leader. So, uh, you know, we need a lot more. We need more than 10,000 individuals. So scale 
is really important, I think, going forward. New types of leadership, of course, leadership is, you know, the kind of leadership I described, this new kind of leadership needs to evolve and it needs to be owned by individuals and taken in hand and shaped by those individuals. So that's one of the things that that I would like to see going forward. Mm -hmm. I come back to my original point that even if you've been through one of our courses, if you're not still feeling uncomfortable (laughs) on a regular basis, there's something wrong. Um, So continue to feel uncomfortable because that's what keeps us innovating, moving forward and coming up with solutions. There's absolutely nothing I can add to that, Martin. Thank you for ending so on brand and so on message for the Discomfort Practice podcast. As always, I've said this, I will say it again, but I really appreciate what you do in the world, what CISL does in the world, what the people who've come through CISL do, but also I just really appreciate that reiteration that everyone is a leader and can be a leader. And that's exactly what we need to move forward as a society to live well on this planet. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for doing what you do. I really appreciate your time here, Martin. You're welcome, Betsy. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave me a review wherever you listen to podcasts and head over to the Discomfort Practice Patreon page. For the cost of a cup of coffee once a month, you can become a contributor and help us to produce this podcast and reach new people with the idea that discomfort is just the edge of change, the edge of our superpowers, and the edge of changing the world for the better. Thanks to my wonderful team who helped me produce this podcast, to Thomas Sheffer for the original music, Katrina Affleck for the original artwork, and to my co-producer Spencer Rausch. Let's all stay uncomfortable.